Welcome to episode 183 here on the Yours Julie podcast. This is Claire speaking. I am your host. I'm a non-diet registered dietitian. I like to call myself a semi-podcaster because I do release episodes here on the podcast once monthly. And I also happen to be an intuitive eating counselor, a business owner. I wear a lot of different hats here, but I am really grateful that you have decided to join me for today's episode. As you'll learn, the format and structure of today's episode is a little bit different than what you might be used to if you've been tuning in to the podcast for any time at all, because I have a co-host on today's episode. The co-host also happens to be my executive assistant here at Yours Truly Nutrition. She is behind a lot of our creative endeavors and planning for the podcast and editing many of my things, preparing slide decks for any of the live classes that I host. She is really an invaluable part of my very small team here. It's just me and her, but I am super excited that she has decided to join me for this conversation on food habituation, sugar addiction, heavy air quotes there. You'll learn why, as Sonia explains later. Um, And we also just talk about some general fall memories, Halloween time. I know we're getting into the time of the year where a lot of holidays tend to ramp up, so Sonia and I thought this would be a really great time to talk about these things, our relationship to off-limits foods, to sugary things, to foods that we might not keep around a whole lot, because I know this tends to be a really big topic of conversation and one that I personally get a lot of questions about from clients heading into Halloween and the holiday season. Sonia will introduce herself more at the start of our recording, but as you'll learn, she is not only my assistant, but she also happens to be a friend and a fellow registered dietitian. So I agree with all of her takes here and I am thankful for her time and I am glad that you all get to to meet her through the airwaves here. You will continue to see her, you know, behind a lot of things here at Yours Truly Nutrition, but I'm also playing around with having her take the reins on some new things and some of that will include the podcast, so you might be hearing more of her in the future too. Before we get into today's conversation though, I do want to offer a quick update on something that is happening in real time. If you are listening to the podcast on the day that it airs, Wednesday, October 25th. So right now, this week, we are currently in an open enrollment period for my monthly membership group called the Yours Julie Collective. If you are new around here, the collective is something that I created back this January, January of 2023, because I wanted to create a community and an ongoing support system for people wanting help in their relationships with food but didn't necessarily want to work with a dietitian one-on-one and they wanted that level of support at a much lower and more accessible investment than one-on-one coaching. So the collective could be for you if you're someone who is looking for non-judgment nutrition classes, if you want to learn more about cooking and cooking skills from a non-diet lens, and if you want a really great group and community support system to check in with and get to know over the holiday season. I'm really excited for the next three months here in the collective, our November through January group, because it is our holiday edition of the Yours Julie collective. So our quarterly live masterclass is going to be all about how to thrive during the holiday season. I'm calling this the holiday thrival guide. So it's not just about surviving the holidays, but it's going to be a how-to guide to help you feel your best while navigating traveling, holiday food and meals, and social gatherings this holiday season. 
For our quarterly cooking skills workshop, we're going to be bringing in New York City-based personal chef, Elia Wolberger. You might remember Elia from the January episode of the Yours Julie podcast, so if you want more from her, be sure to check that out. But in this cooking skills workshop, we're going to be tag teaming it, talking about how to make meal prep not a chore in 2024. So I'm going to be sharing with you how a version of meal prep and planning ahead for meals can most definitely exist independently of dieting and restriction. And then Elia is going to take it over on the actual cooking skills side of things and share some really valuable tools to help you get started with a stressless version of meal prep to keep you nourished in the new year. Also, a new addition of the membership in this three-month cycle is we're going to be doing monthly community connection calls. These are going to be an hour long. I will be hosting these over Zoom, and this will be a chance for members to drop in and ask me questions about nutrition, share their wins and their challenges, and of course, get to know their fellow community members. You can really think about these as a monthly touch base, a monthly support call, and I'm hoping that these will be really useful over the holidays season where you might be exposed to a lot more situations that can be activating and they can bring up a lot of negativity or or just challenges in general in your relationship with food. So this will be a nice home base that will feel like a safe spot for you to come and unpack and learn from others who maybe are going through similar stuff. So like I said earlier, this is one of the most um, value-packed and cost-effective ways to work with me long-term. So the monthly investment for the collective is $47 a month, or if you choose to invest for three months in full, it is one payment of $111. In your three months of membership, you're going to get that quarterly live class, the cooking skills workshop, it is all included. Those monthly connection calls will be included, and we have a private Facebook group as well for you to come pop in ask questions share recipes that's kind of your your daily support line there As you might be able to gather, there is a three-month commitment for the membership. So you come in, if you enroll within this week, you will be with the group from November to January. So really important time to have support in your relationship with food if you anticipate some challenges. But after those three months, it is totally up to you if you choose to stay with us for another three months or if you leave the membership from there. Enrollment is only open every three months for the collective. So if you want in on our November through January session, you will have to enroll by the end of the day on Halloween, October 31st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern. So if you're interested and you'd like more information on the membership, we have a link to the landing page below where you can read all of this written down and then you can grab your spot in the collective from there. You can also visit my Instagram, my link tree in my bio there, and the direct link to sign up for the collective will be there for this week. Now, if you happen to be tuning into this episode after this final week in October and you're like, dang, I missed it, not to fret. I will be opening another membership session at the end of January. So you can always join us then. But like I said, if you're wanting some encouragement and connection on all of these non-diet topics throughout the holidays, now would be the time to join us. But enough about the collective. Let's go ahead and get into today's episode all about food habituation and sugar and fall memories with my friend and colleague and assistant, Sonia Sawyer. Enjoy. Hi, Sonia. Welcome to the podcast. 
Hi, Claire. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So um, let's give the people, let's give the listeners a little bit of background on who you are, because I have known you for quite some time now. You are so wonderful and you are such a help to me and everything behind the scenes, but we're experimenting a little bit more recently with having you more in front of the scenes and doing some things. And this is your first time on the podcast. So can you tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So Claire and I started working together, like she said, a little for a little while now, a bit over a year. I worked as her executive assistant. And so let's see, before that, I became a registered dietitian um, a couple years before meeting Claire. And so I went to school at Winthrop University in South Carolina, where I completed my bachelor's degree, as well as my master's degree. And then I went through the dietetic internship at Winthrop University as well. Um, Really came out of the internship and um, my schooling, very excited and eager as, you know, a young also very confused, right? I didn't necessarily know where I wanted to focus my energy and my time as a dietitian. And that's when a fellow friend, a peer of mine, introduced me to Claire and said, you know what, she, Claire works from this lens of, um, you know, intuitive eating and uh, this principle revolving around food freedom. And I think you might really find like, your calling there. I think you might really resonate with the mess, the types of messages Claire really puts out there. And, and I think um, I mentioned to you prior, you know, when I first started working with you that, you know, the concept of intuitive eating was new to me at that time. It's not something that's really taught to us in school, at least not the time that I was going through the program. And so um, it was very, it was an opportunity to work with you to really help me learn and grow more as a dietitian as well and um, inevitably help me get a better idea of how I want to practice and work with clients eventually. And so I have really enjoyed working with you. Um, it has been a lot of fun. And yes, behind the scenes work, still learning, still growing as a dietitian, but also starting to branch out a little bit at this point. Yeah, I feel like you've uh, you've gotten a look at a lot of things that I have been doing as a dietitian that I never would have expected. Like with private practice, it's a bunch of design and graphics and building slide decks and you know coming up with with content for a lot of things that we do on on social media. So it's not only the nutrition focused work and nutrition education, but it's a lot of um, computer stuff that again I wasn't really on my radar when I first started as a, as a dietitian. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point too. I mean, um, I'm sure some dietetic internships offer different rotations that revolve around private practice, particularly virtually, but my experience did not. So yeah, that was absolutely another way that I just not just the content, you know, that you and the messages that you put out there, but the way in which you operate as a private practice dietitian was totally new to me as well. So yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, it's a whole different, whole different approach and a way of thinking. And I appreciate you being here today on 
the podcast. Like I mentioned for our listeners, we've been um, trying some different things and this is your first time here on the show. Um, I, I shared with Sonia before we hit record that one of the reasons why I am so excited for her to be here today is because sitting down sometimes to record a solo episode when I don't have a guest is hard and I put it off on my calendar. So I'm really excited to have a co-host <laughs> for today's episode who not only has known me in the business for a while, but obviously you're a, a registered dietitian yourself. So you are well-versed on a lot of the topics that we're going to cover today. So Sonia, I thought it would be fun since you are the person behind many other episodes of the podcast and you help me plan and brainstorm episodes you have come up with a lot of this or that questions that I tend to ask other guests at the start of episodes. And again, you're my co-host for today, not, not mm-hmm. guest as much, but I thought it would still be fun to kick us off on our Halloween-themed episode, our sugar-themed episode, with a bit of this or that on some Halloween candy topics. So are you ready? I am ready. A little nervous, too, because <laughs> when I create these for other people, I often think, I don't even know what I would say. So this should be interesting. (laughs) Well, you'll get a a taste of your own questions here. There you go. (laughs) Okay, so we'll start broad, pretty general. When it comes to candy, do you prefer chocolate or sour candy? This one's a pretty easy one for me. I'm a chocolate gal through and through. Easy enough. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I haven't stumped you yet. So I do have one about like the gummy sour candies and then the rest of them are related to chocolate. So Sour Patch Kids or Swedish Fish, if you had to choose one? Ooh. I would have to lean towards Swedish Fish. I really do enjoy both, Mm -hmm. you know, for different reasons. But Swedish Fish, for some reason, just hit different. Have you ever tried the... Trader Joe's version of a Swedish fish. The Scandinavian swimmers? Yes. (laughs) You know, I haven't. I have seen them probably every time that I've ever been into a Trader Joe's in the last Mm -hmm. however many years since that came out, but I've never tried them. I just, it's not that I don't like gummies, but they're usually not the candy that I'm going to like gravitate towards. So maybe that's why I haven't. I totally, I'm with you on that. I, um, my brother actually introduced me to the, um, the Trader Joe's Scandinavian swimmers. Is that what? Yeah. Uh Yeah. Um, we were going on a family vacation and he's like, listen, I just need you to take a special trip to Trader Joe's and pick these up. And I'm like, I mean, come on, really? There's not one close to me. Is this like, how important is this to you? Right. And he, um, very much expressed how important it was. And so I went and grabbed them and not for nothing. I am so sorry, but my two cats are in the middle of a stat right now. I'm not sure if our listeners could hear this, but they are really having a fun time this morning. So they're getting after they're like, mom recording something. This is when we will have our zoomies. This is the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, um, he introduced me to them and I'm the same way. I would have never gravitated to them myself, but after trying them, I was like, wow, if there is somebody out there that really enjoys Swedish fish, um, trying that version, um, I would highly recommend. It's just really enjoyable. Well, (laughs) well, you have convinced me that that needs to be on my list for that I go. Okay. Back to our chocolate line of questioning, Twix or Milky Way? Ooh, Twix or Milky Way. I'm going to have to go with Twix. Yep. 
Okay. I am, um, to be totally honest, I'm not really a fan of either. I know I was like, I like chocolate candies, but my loyalty really lies in the peanut butter chocolate combination, which yeah. is coming up in my next question. But if I had to choose one, I think I would pick Milky Way. Just, I really like the the caramel in those. I think they're super good. Yeah. See, I think I go more towards Twix because I like the added crunch. The crunch of the wafer. Yeah. Understandable. Okay. Final question. I already gave it away, but if we're talking Reese's shapes, do you think the pumpkin shape is better? The tree, the heart, or the Easter egg? Did I miss any? (laughs) Um, they have a new skull now. I don't know if you saw. Oh, I haven't. No. This is actually a very interesting question because I am a little embarrassed to admit that I have stayed away from the shapes. And this is why I am just like, I enjoy the traditional Reese's cup so much that I have never wanted to be disappointed. And so I'm worried about the ratio, the peanut butter to chocolate ratio. I enjoy Mm. the original ratio so much that I haven't actually delved in to any of the other shapes, or at least not recently for me to have, um, an opinion on it, but my brother-in-law did recently tell me that I'm totally missing out. The shapes are where they're at. And so I guess maybe I'll flip it onto you. Which do you think I should try first? (laughs) Well, well, I have to know, is it the same brother-in-law that's a big fan of the Scandinavian swimmers? Is he like the candy connoisseur? (laughs) (laughs) Different brother. (laughs) Oh, so it was your brother. Scandinavian swimmer's brother-in-law. I see. I see. We have a lot of strong opinions in your family about about candy. Um, I I would have to say that the shapes, in my opinion, are better than the traditional cups because I prefer more peanut butter to chocolate. I just, I love peanut butter through and through. I feel like whenever I talk about the shapes on my Instagram story, my DM inbox is always flooded with people being like, it's because the ratios are different. (laughs) There's more peanut butter and people can either love that or like you not love that as much because you like that original ratio of the more chocolate to peanut butter. But the good news is for you, I don't think the cups are going anywhere. So if you try a shape and you don't like it as much, you can always go back to what you're used to. <laughs> That's so true. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing kind of deal here. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so we've already started talking about sweets and Halloween candy. Like I shared with you before we hit record, I just thought this would be a really great time of year to do an episode on food habituation, on sugar, on our relationship to candy. So before we get into all of that, like the the bulk of the episode, I did just want to ask to kick us off if you have any fun fall memories or memories that maybe have something to do with Halloween candy, since this is our topic, like what comes to mind for you when you think of this time of year? Yeah, I love this question. So I originally grew up um, in I am Connecticut. And so really when I think of fall, what really comes to mind are is like the changing of colors of the leaves. And it was just such a prominent part of my childhood. So I think that that would be like my favorite childhood memory is everything related to the changing fall colors. So we would, I remember when we were younger or even like, you know, growing up, my brother and I, you know, we would have the chore and help my dad with, um, 
the raking of all the leaves, right? We had a lot of maple trees in our yard. And I love that because they produce really beautiful colors typically. Um, but I not so much loved the amount of leaves that they created um, until the end of our duties were done and we were able to jump in the leaves and mm. have a bunch of fun that way. So um, I really have some vivid memories of me and my my older brother. I only have one brother, but he's older. <laughs> um, he and I would just have a blast and, you know, we do our chore, break the leaves and then just kind of like have a bunch of fun and you know, make scarecrows with the leaves. I, I was going to ask, yeah, did you ever stuff like a pair of your dad's or mom's pants with the leaves? <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah, so that's where I think when I think of this time of year, that really, really brings me back. Um, and then we would even just go for drives, you know, so we were in Connecticut, but if, of course, if you go more north where it gets a little cooler, a little sooner, um, you got to see even more vivid color. So we would take drives up to Massachusetts or, you know, just even like in our own area and just kind of check out the foliage. And um, that was always a big part of fall for us growing up. What about you? What kind of fall memories do you have? I'm with you on the leaves. That is like a core childhood memory of raking the leaves and then just absolutely destroying the piles. Yep. <laughs> Having to, to do them again. I um I grew up in southwestern Virginia, so really close to where the Blue Ridge Parkway cuts mm-hmm. through Virginia. So on your topic of drives, we would also take drives. And as I got older and I could drive myself, I would love spending time up on the parkway looking at the colors, having picnics on the parkway, you know, sweater, sweater weather, all of that stuff is really nice. I also think too, more Halloween specific to me, like October is really the Halloween type of month. If you're into that, whereas like September, November, or just the, the fall general types of months. But when I think of October, and Halloween, I think of um, a potluck that my neighborhood would do, like a bunch of my childhood friends, the same friend's family would host it every year. And we would always go there before we did trick-or-treating. And it was the typical smorgasbord that you would think of like a pre-trick-or-treating Halloween meal. It was like the pigs in a blanket made to look like mummies. <laughs> it's like oh, yeah. all of the dips and the chips and stuff. And of, of course, all of us being young, we would be dressed up and looking at each other's costumes. So that was super fun. And then I think about, you know, the actual act of trick-or-treating. Uh, I grew up as, as an only child, but thankfully I had neighborhood friends to do this with when you have like your loot all of your candy that you got and you like dump it out and you start trading for your favorites. Those are some of my core memories that are more Halloween specific, but, but in general to fall too. Yeah, no, I, I really resonate with that too. I grew up in a really fun neighborhood for trick-or-treating and I just remember there were so many kids in my neighborhood too. And so that was the act of trick-or-treating itself was always just so much fun. And then, yeah, coming home and me and my brother would dump out our candy and do the tradesies. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Bargaining. Like I'll give you, I I hated Laffy Taffy, like no hate, no shade to people who love Laffy Taffy, but the banana, like vom. I'd be like, I will trade you all of my Laffy Taffies for one Reese's (laughs) for one thing of the fun dip. I was a big fun dip girl. Ooh, yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this actually brings me to, you know, we're talking about Halloween candy. I have here in our notes section for the episode that I wanted to share a story on something that I call the open candy jar policy. And total side note before I get into the story, if you can hear the garbage truck outside, I apologize for that. It is garbage day. And it's so loud. So, you know, to our listeners, we have a cat squabble and garbage going on, but this is just the real life of filming. There you go. (laughs) Um, But my open candy jar policy. So I have shared this story, I think maybe once before here on my podcast. I know I've shared it on other podcasts before. Um, uh, The one with Sammy and Jenna, what is their podcast called? What the Actual Fork, that's the name of the podcast. So as anyone is looking for the full story, go find my episode with them from last fall. But this is a story that I feel like super privileged to share because it really is an example of how I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where food was more of like a positive and exciting thing. And obviously I had access to food, but my parents never really restricted or shamed certain types of foods while elevating other types of foods. So, you know, I told you earlier that I would come home from trick-or-treating and have my whole little plastic jack-o'-lantern full of candy. I was able to eat what I wanted. On Halloween night, I was never policed or monitored. And then whatever was left over, which was typically a lot of candy, all the houses in my neighborhood were very close together. So we would get a lot of candy, but whatever was left over would just go into a cabinet in my family's dining room and it would stay there. I would have open access to it. I could pop into the candy jar, you know, weeks later, months later, and just grab things as I wanted. And at the time, I didn't really think anything of that. I was like, this is how it is. The candy is there. I want it sometimes, not all the time. But when I started to notice that maybe everyone else's house wasn't like that is when I would have friends come over and they would be in awe of this candy jar. And it would be a lot of those same friends that I would go trick-or-treating with. <laughs> like, you know, you all have all of this candy at home. Where is yours? And they would tell me, like, we're not allowed to have it anymore, or we're only allowed to have it on certain days, or it's kind of like locked up and out of our reach, which obviously this is a a larger conversation as a parent. Parents get to decide what foods we have around and when kids have access to those foods. But I just noticed that a lot of my friends, when they would come to my house, what they would look forward to most is the candy jar. And their parents probably had feelings about them getting candy at my house if that wasn't available to them, but that's like all they wanted to do. They wanted to look through the candy. They wanted to eat a bunch. And I had a hard time understanding at that point why it felt like such a big deal for them, right? Obviously now I understand that with restriction or feeling like certain foods are placed on a pedestal or if they're labeled bad or off limits, We are going to have more of a fixation on those foods and they are going to feel more novel and exciting. So I understand the why of that now, but it's just really interesting to look back on that story and that experience as a kid and understand more deeply now what was going on and why for me that felt more commonplace. It felt more normal. And many of my friends had a different experience with that. Did, Did you ever have anything similar to that or what was the candy like in your house? Yeah. So for me, I think, you know, looking back, my the way my parents handled Halloween candy, I would say was probably a good happy medium. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely like Halloween night, 
I remember them kind of giving us kind of like all access, right? Have what you want. Know that if you eat a lot of candy, you're probably going to have a stomach ache. That yeah. Um, like fair warning, but you know what? Have at it kind of thing. I always remember that. Um, and then after Halloween night, the candy wouldn't be necessarily locked away, but it would be put in the pantry and then offered at certain times. So um, like what I can remember most is it really, really looking forward to having candy as like an after school snack or mm-hmm. as part of our dessert. Um, also we would bring like bagged lunches to school. And so I remember my parents like always throwing in a couple pieces there. So it wasn't necessarily off limits or restricted. Well, I guess it, yeah, it was restricted to a certain degree after Halloween, but, um, but it wasn't so rigid as I would imagine some households are. Um, and so I do appreciate the fact that my parents allowed, um, you know, kind of like inserted areas, but to us, it was like no different than any other type of, I don't know, like novelty treat, right? Mm -hmm. Like we think about like the treats that we enjoyed when we were kids, like when they were offered, it was kind of offered along the same, along the same lines. But I will say the reason I can so definitively say, you you know what? No, it was restricted. Mm -hmm. Because I can remember not loving the idea that it was only offered for dessert or for snack. And so I would go into the pantry and I would sneak some candy and bring it to my room. So I have that memory of being like, well, I understand that it's offered at this time, but I want it now kind of thing. And like taking it upon myself to kind of sneak it, be a little rebellious with the candy. Um, that's not to say my parents didn't know. I'm sure, I'm sure they caught that to to my ways. But, um, yeah, I really love that your parents had that open jar policy with you because, like you said, looking back, like maybe not knowing in the moment, but looking back, I mean, how amazing that that was, like you being able to understand your desires, your body, your 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 wants around candy and sweets, like how helpful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really grateful for it. When I look back at that experience, I don't know if they had a certain intention behind it or if that's just what happened and and how how the the household rolled with candy. But I want to acknowledge as well, because I'm sure inevitably there are some parents listening to our stories thinking I could never do that with my child um, or that would be chaos in my household. I think it is important to point out that every child is different. Every household is different. What works well for one person might not for someone else, but I appreciate your story as well. You defined it as that happy medium, maybe between my story and a very restricted or rigid relationship with that candy. I think now when I see a lot of our dietitian colleagues, specifically those who specialize in pediatric nutrition or or feeding kids. One who stands out to me is Dr. Taylor Arnold, who you know, but I'll remind our listeners, she was actually the last episode here on the podcast. So definitely go back and listen to that um, if you're curious about feeding kids. But you know, something that she does, and I see other people talk about this as well, is offering sweets or something that might feel like a more novel or quote unquote off limits type of food as part 
of a meal, like with the main meal, as part of lunch, as part of dinner, maybe not necessarily separating it as like, you have to eat all of this before you can have this treat, but presenting it as this is part of the meal. This is something that you're allowed to enjoy. We know that it serves a different purpose in fueling our body and, you know, tingling our taste buds and some of our other foods, but just having those clear examples if it's not off limits. And also at the same time, this is not our sole source of energy. If we eat only this, this probably isn't going to make our bodies feel the best. So I think it's nice that you had that happy medium too. Absolutely. I agree. Yep. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I I'd love to get into is just this topic of food habituation. So you and I both know about food habituation. It's something that we have talked about off mic, but I'm curious from, from your perspective, what do you know about food habituation? Like, give me your take on it and I'll give you mine. Yeah. So I know in the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that even the concept of intuitive eating in general was new to me when I first started working with you. And so um, I will say the same about food habituation. I first learned about the topic through work that we've done together. And so um, what I've grown to know about it is, you know, essentially the principle that the more we, the more permission we give ourselves around certain types of food or around food in general, the less likely we are to fixate on those foods or to possibly overconsume or feel out of control around those foods or even to place them on a pedestal, right? And so the idea being, you know, the more allowance around um, food without guilt or without shame the more likely we are to have hopefully a better relationship with it, right? And on the opposite end of the spectrum, the more we restrict food or the more we um, try to demonize or, you know, label food, uh, possibly the more we're going to fixate on it mm-hmm. and the more we're going to feel a little bit out of control around it. And so just in general, that concept has really um, even helped me in my own life, like really just learning um, the basic concept of what restrict, like the, the magnitude of what restriction can do to, to our and overall like actions and habits. And so um, it was actually about this time last year when the topic first came up with us around Halloween time. And you had shared your open candy jar policy with me at that time. And you were helping me learn and understand more about this principle, this topic. And I was like, you know what? I am going to try this in my household because my husband and I tend to feel very out of control around sweets. And so I did that last Halloween. And let me tell you, Claire, like, I was so skeptical. I'm like, man, I'm going to put all this candy in this jar. It's going to be gone in a week. I don't know what I'm supposed to learn from this. But of course, you go through a period or at least I personally and my I saw my husband also, we went through a period where we're like, oh, my gosh, we haven't had these, you know, Reese's Cups available. We haven't had all of this candy available. So yeah, we would, we would eat and it would take a little bit more for us to feel satisfied and done with our, our candy session. But as time went on, I mean, like I had Halloween candy well into Easter. I'm like, what, 
what is happening? Like it has been a half a year and I am still, I still have Halloween candy. And then I started, you know, to try it with different things um, that I found to be my quote unquote, like problem foods or previously deemed off limit foods. Right. So one of those would be ice cream. Mm -hmm. And I saw the same thing happen once I started to put it into practice and really allow not just um, the physical permission to eat, but the mental permission, like the, like no longer telling myself like, okay, I'm going to eat this ice cream or I'm going to eat this candy, but I shouldn't. Right. Like that's always what tends to come up is like, but I shouldn't. Once I reached a point where I was also mentally and emotionally allowing myself to eat these foods, I recognized that I wasn't even thinking about them. Like ice cream goes bad in my freezer now. That has never been a thing. And so I guess like I'm just for one, I'm grateful that I was personally able to learn about the concept of food habituation because I have seen it. Um, work wonders in my own personal life, but also just being able to have this, you know, my back pocket for when we do create content for followers and listeners and being able to just like have another tool to use within, you know, the realm of being a registered dietitian. I think it's been wonderful, but um, I'm interested to hear what else you have to say on the topic too. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you shared not only a, a definition to kick us off, but also your personal experiences with it. I'm super grateful that you did. And it's really cool as as a dietitian and as a health professional, as you know, to obviously be able to create content and help clients, but to also take the things that we learn and apply it to our own relationship with food and, and experiment in that way. So it's cool that you had a chance to do this around this time last year on this exact topic. And yeah, I always like to talk about food habituation around this time of year and the holiday season in general, because it does tend to be a time of year where we maybe have a a greater variety of sweets on hand, or there are more social opportunities to be eating things that we don't have around all year round for whatever reason, whether that's preference or all of these holidays just happen to be packed within three months of each other. So I think it's a a great time of year to unpack this topic a little bit more. So as you said, food habituation is really this idea that with increased exposure and permission around certain foods, the less power those foods hold over us over a certain time. Um, This can happen with all different types of foods, but we typically see this happening most with foods that were once deemed quote unquote bad or off limits, kind of like you were saying with the Halloween candy. And I wanted to chat through just briefly here. I made a list of things that can make food habituation harder because people might be listening to us and our definition thinking, I get it. It sounds great, but that seems super tough or that seems really far away from where I am right now in my relationship with food. So a couple of things, this list probably is not all encompassing, but it's the biggest ones that I see in working with clients. So the first is diet rules. This one's pretty obvious rules that are restricting entire food groups, diets that are placing you on a very tight, you know, calorie restriction where you're really having a lot of those last supper eating type of moments where it's like, I can have this now, but it's gone tomorrow, or I can eat this much today, but I really have to cut back tomorrow. That sense of last supper eating or feeling like I'm not going to have this very soon can prevent 
food habituation from happening. Also, a second thing that's not as much talked about, but it can still be a very real factor, is food insecurity, right? If you are uncertain if food is going to be available to meet those basic needs, food habituation is going to feel really, really challenging because you're worried from like a survival perspective. Like if you haven't had consistent and available access to food, of course, we are going to feel more fixated on it and more focused on eating as much as we can right now, because it might not be available later. So that's kind of like an example of um, restriction that isn't a choice versus restriction that might be a little bit more of a choice in the case of a diet that you are choosing to go on or um, in a diet that might be medically prescribed. Obviously, that's not always a choice, but I wanted to paint the difference here between dieting rules and then food insecurity. Um, Another thing that isn't as often talked about is varying levels of body privilege. So I like to be super open in naming my body privileges. Like I exist in a smaller body. It is relatively easy for me to talk about, eat these foods, enjoy permission around food. I don't really share a whole lot on social media of like photos of me eating foods for that exact reason, because it is relatively easy for someone like me to say, make peace with food, enjoy all of these things. Whereas someone who doesn't have my same body privileges, who is fearful rightfully so, of facing a lot of criticism or pushback from medical providers or family members or loved ones. Like, you're really eating that. You shouldn't have that in the house because of their body size. It's not going to be as simple as some of those posts we might see on social media, like, just eat the cookie. Like, it is not as simple as that. Um, And then the last thing that I wanted to list here is not feeling safe or at ease in your home environment where you're maybe wanting to test out some of these once off limits foods. So I think a lot in the case of um, people who are living with a family member or a loved one, or even a roommate who is very critical and harsh about food choices, of course, you're not going to want to bring these foods into your home and work on eating them more freely. If every time you go into the kitchen and open up a bag of something, you're going to be met with hateful words, or I can't believe you're doing that, or someone who is just not in a good place with their own relationship with food. So I just wanted to call out those things because like I said, I see a lot of these posts with positive intentions that are encouraging more freedom and flexibility with food, but it is not always as simple as I want this. So I'm just going to eat the cookie. (laughs) There are so many layers. Absolutely. I really... I really appreciate you bringing up all of those factors too. You know, I had mentioned in my own personal story, having that inner critic, Mm -hmm. right? That has come from years of, you know, whether that be diet culture or those, all the, you know, a lot of those external factors you were talking about playing a role, but to really bring mention to them, I think is so, so important. You know, everyone's journey is going to look different when it comes to finding a place of, Um, eating in a way that makes us feel mentally and physically good, right? And so um, I think it is so important to really remember all of those external and internal factors that that play a very large role. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say too, you just mentioned how everyone's work with this 
is going to be different in everyone's experience. One thing um, that I wanted to mention, maybe this could be helpful for some of our listeners who are like, I want to work on this, but this is scary or it feels inaccessible in some way. Um, I have a couple questions that I share with clients who express, I want to work on this to help them figure out where they want to start and what feels accessible and what is going to make this process feel a little bit safer for them. So I'll share mine. And if you like have anything to add, pop in and and let me know. So the first question that I ask clients is what is a way that you can start small with this? So many people who I have worked with, and you've maybe heard of people as well, who have some kind of dieting or disordered eating history, they have a laundry list of foods that feel like they are off limits. And in a conversation about food habituation, one of the things that can feel really overwhelming is feeling like I have to work through so many things. Do I need to keep all of these foods in my house? That feels really chaotic. I feel really uncomfortable with that. So it's reminding yourself first and foremost that you don't have to start with all of the foods at once. We have time. We can work on this quite literally bite by bite. So I invite people, if you're interested in trying this, maybe starting with one type of food. So if it is Halloween candy, great. There's a lot of it on the shelves right now. If it's something like ice cream, like you were talking about, trying that and starting there, knowing that you can do more than one trial at once, but you don't have to, and you can start small. So first question, what is a small way that I can start with this? The second one is when I'm testing a previously off limits foods, what are some things that I can do to make that experiment feel safer? So one example is if you do have someone in your household who is not on the same page with food and you're fearing that criticism or that judgment, maybe it's trying the food in a different environment. Like when you're out to eat with a friend who might feel supportive or when you're visiting family members who aren't going to be as critical if if you have those. Um, maybe one thing to do would be if you're working with a dietitian, letting them know or even like a super supportive friend. Hey, I'm trying this. I'm a little bit nervous. Will you be on the other end of a phone for some messaging support if I need it? A really big one that I also think of is knowing that entering into an eating experience, feeling so hungry can be one of the things that makes us feel more out of control. Just making sure that leading up to your experiment with this food, that you have had like meals and snacks during the day. And you're not, you know, trying to quote unquote, save calories and efforts to, to make room for this because that can be setting us up for failure to begin with. So make sure you're nourished, make sure you have maybe some tools or some people at your disposal who will make this feel more comfortable. Anything else come to mind on, on your perspective as someone who's kind of done this recently, like anything to think of to make this process feel safer? Yeah, I think along the same lines of having the support system to help make it feel more comfortable, I think it um, it's worth mentioning um, that having that safe space or a tool in your back pocket to be able to use to be able to seek out compassion, right? Because it is a journey and we are going to have ups and downs and we're going to be learning about ourselves along the way. And sometimes when we expect a certain outcome or we expect 
the experiment to go a certain way and it doesn't, we can oftentimes, I know myself personally, I can quickly end up in a place of, you know, shame or guilt or, you know, feeling like I did something wrong or, you know, feeling like I failed. And so having maybe that same support system or different people that, you know, really help to make you aware of having that self-compassion and mm-hmm. having, um, you know, kind of uh, forgiveness with within yourself throughout this journey too, I think is going to be a really important aspect of, um, of remembering, you know, as you, as you go through. So I would yeah. add that. I co-sign a hundred percent. I think that's a great thing to add. And one other thing that just popped into my mind too, is knowing that this takes time and any food rule or fear or hesitation around food that we have spent years and years learning is not going to be unlearned in a matter of one trial. We're not going to make peace with the food immediately. It does take time. And that fact in and of itself can feel uncomfortable. Like like how often do I have to keep this around? How many times do I have to try? So again, for anyone who is listening, remember that it will take time. And if you're working with a support person or you have a friend who's done something similar, just, you know, keep them in the loop so they can remind you of the the long-term goal here and how there might be some discomforts or some bumps in the road to get there, but every eating experience is a, is a learning opportunity. So, so need the final thing that I want to be sure that we touch on, and I know we are running short on time. So this could be a whole episode in and of itself, and maybe we will reconvene at a future time for a more in-depth conversation on sugar and addiction. I know those are two very big hot button terms, and we will not be able to do this topic full justice in (laughs) the eight minutes that that we have. But um, what do you know? Just give us, if you had to give us an elevator pitch, because I know you have looked into a lot of research lately on this topic. So if there were a couple of bullet points on this, what would you want listeners to know? I think the biggest takeaway I would want listeners to know of the relationship of sugar and this idea that it's possibly addictive is that a lot of the, a lot of the literature, a lot of the research that's out there that does lean in the way of sugar being addictive has a lot of holes in it. And so I guess first I'll, I'll just let you know that I personally do not feel that sugar is addictive. I feel that there are, a lot of maybe feelings around sugar and around food in general that can lead someone to believe that maybe that out of control feeling or the, the, the pure bliss that they have when they enjoy it could, could somewhat make them feel like they are addicted. But when it comes to the research, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the studies I was looking at that kind of tried to demonstrate that sugar is addictive. They really revolved around a lot of animal studies. And what I noticed too, is that they, the animals were often more often than not restricted from Mm -hmm. that sugar for a, a very, like for a period of time prior to being allowed the sugar and then, you know, being studied from there. And so First and foremost, a lot of the studies out there that lean towards sugar being addictive are animal-based. Um, and, you know, as we know, that's not going to reflect um, perfectly, obviously, for for humans. You know, we're so much more complex. There's so much more going on. 
Um, but that leads me to also the study designs for humans within this topic. So what I've noticed um, more often than not, when there are studies involving humans in this topic, they do not control for or take into consideration that those individuals dieting history, um, any history of disordered eating habits or eating disorders, or even like you had mentioned earlier, um, the um, availability of food. So is there a social determinant of health there that is, you know, playing a role in how people are reacting and responding to food. And so oftentimes these studies do not include those things. They don't rule them out. Um, along the same lines is um, this idea that humans can, unlike um, animals, right, can not only physically restrict food, but we have this capacity being such complex beings that we can mentally restrict food. So a lot of the studies also won't take that into consideration, um, again, along the same lines of like, you know, dieting history and, and things like that physically, but mentally, what is going on with, with an individual. And so I guess in general, I would, you know, there's just so many complexities to human studies and in order to have what we would need um, to rule sugar being addictive, which would be cause and effect, right? There's a mm -hmm. there's a difference between cause and effect, and there's a difference between correlation. And mm -hmm. so, what I really kind of took away from a, a lot of, um, a lot of the research I did was that, you know, there are so many variables within living a life as a human, and in order to control for every single one of those variables, whether it be external variables, or internal variables, environmental, you know, all of these sorts of things is near impossible. And so how can we say this causes this, right? And so that's a lot of, um, I think, the biggest kind of takeaways I was getting when I was looking more into uh, the topic and also just the idea that food by nature is supposed to be rewarding, right? Mm -hmm. So like survival of the fittest would have taken over a long time ago for humans if we did not find food consumption in general rewarding and continuously go after it. And so the idea that the reward cent um, centers of the brain kind of spike and we get these dopamine and all of these different responses in the body just makes sense to me, right? From like a biological standpoint of us needing food to survive. Yeah. So I guess in that's, that's my biggest takeaways, but I'm interested also to hear your take on this too. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, of course, those pleasure centers are going to be lighting up when we are eating food that is sweet and it tastes good and it's enjoyable, just as those pleasure centers would be lighting up when we're engaging in other activities that we love, <laughs> watching fun puppy videos, talking to someone who we care about, right? It's like that experience is not unique to sugar consumption. Um, that was amazing. Like what you did. I am so glad I asked you that question first because I'm over here nodding my head being like, so very well said, so well put. And like I said, I, I wanted 
to give you the chance to answer that question first, since I know you have been deep into the research on that topic lately. So I appreciate you sharing that. And really the only thing that I want to add, because you hit all of the study aspects very well, is just circling back to what you said about the feeling of being addicted to sugar being very real for some people and very valid. I always want to try to handle this topic with a lot of thoughtfulness and a lot of care because that feeling of, well, I am out of control around food, or I think about it all the time. I think about the next opportunity I'm going to have to eat it is very real for many people who maybe have a dieting history, who are restricted, who have experienced food insecurity, or maybe there's something else going on there, like another underlying health condition. So we are not aiming to invalidate anyone's experience, but we are here to highlight that having an out of control experience around food does not equal an addiction, but there can be a lot of other things going on because we need food. We need carbohydrates, AKA sugar to survive. That is the preferred source of fuel in our cells. So an abstinence-based approach isn't really applicable here. It won't work, um, which is why I like to talk with my clients about other coping skills related to food and digging deeper into, well, why do we feel that way? And what are some of the other variables at play? So yeah, that's that's really all I have to say. Again, I feel like we could talk for an hour on on that topic, and and maybe we will in the future. If anyone is is curious, let us know, give us some feedback, and we can keep talking about this. But um, Sonia, I really appreciate you being here with me, co-hosting this episode, sharing some memories or research update, talking about food habituation. And um, obviously, if any of our listeners are looking to find you, they can come to, to yours truly. Sonia is behind so many of the things that I do here. And again, like I said at the top of the episode, I am so grateful for your help and especially your time today here on recording. So I don't know if I told you, you probably know how we sign off of episodes. I'll say yours truly my name, and then you just say your name like we're signing off on a letter. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, listeners, that is all we have for you today on our fall slash Halloween themed episode. So we will sign off by saying yours truly, Claire and Sonia. And that's a wrap for our October episode here on the Yours Julie podcast, episode 183, with our special co-host, Sonia Sawyer. I really hope you enjoyed hearing from Sonia. I know I really enjoyed having a buddy to record the podcast with, and I'm grateful for all of the insight that she shared, and I hope you got something valuable from tuning in today. How many times will I make the joke? Probably many more times in the, the life of this podcast. But as always, if you enjoyed today's episode or anything else that you've ever heard here on the show, it would mean the world to us if you could tap those five stars and leave a review if you feel so inclined, if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts. If you listen elsewhere, you can always take a screenshot of this episode and share it with a friend, put it on a social media story, be sure to tag me at Claire Tuning so I can send you a thank you for listening. And like I mentioned at the start of this episode, our upcoming three-month session of the Yours Truly Collective is currently open for enrollment and will be until October 31st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern. So if you want to get in on our ongoing support system with some of our really cool upcoming classes and workshops, be sure to check out the link in the show notes or in the link on my Instagram bio. But thanks again for being here. I will see you in November for probably what will be a holiday-themed episode. But until then, take care, stay hydrated, and of course, nourished. Bye.